Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, God's Man, with a message from Dr. John Newfeld entitled, When Faithfulness Demands Perseverance. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4 to chapter 6 as we go back to the Bible. I can't think of a thing that we're involved in that doesn't eventually become, well, normal and even mundane. Even a sports superstar still has to get up and go through his physical fitness regimen, show up at the rink or the field to practice and to drill. And even the games themselves in mid-season, I'm told, can be less than exciting, less so than the athlete had ever imagined. Oh, I I dare think that about marriage as well. Men, we get married to the love of our lives and we're amazed that such a beautiful creature would condescend to play house with us. And yet here we are 15 years later, that's just the way things are, and what was once spectacular is just now, well, normal. You know, I've been talking to men and what it means to be a godly man. I've been noticing that men and women are different, that women tend to be more holistic and men tend to be more singular. Both are good and both reflect the wisdom of the Creator. Men are designed for accomplishment, and with every battle to be won and every problem to be fixed comes the sense that we're doing something that matters. Men need the sense that they're doing something that's significant. But everyone, no matter what it is that they're doing, asks the following questions. Does it really matter, this thing that I do? Was I right about it when I got started? I didn't know how difficult all this was going to be. The costs have been greater than I thought. And then even on the odd occasion, we might think that perhaps the guy who never risked anything and just played it safe for a lifetime might have been right after all. His life seems a lot easier than mine. And then, of course, comes the dark night of the soul where all men who risk and strive for something believe that they've made the biggest mistake of their lives. And a great many of them, well, they're right. They have made a great mistake. And I've not yet spoken about that deep sense that when we're confronted with the awful truth that we're more sinful than we've ever imagined and that everything that we've ever touched is stained by our own transgression. That's when what drives a godly man forward are really just two things. First, there's a deep sense that that God has called them to the task. That makes it significant that it comes from God. And second, there are the promises of the Word of God. Now, we've been following the example of Nehemiah. We notice first that his sense of calling grew out of the passion he had for the welfare of the people of God and the promises that he found in the Scripture. We then noticed how his station in life as the king's counselor greatly helped him. Then we noticed that he didn't act alone, but in fact was acting in concert with a band of brothers. We noticed that he didn't act on impulse, but was thoroughly prepared to give an account of his plans first to the king and then to the people of Jerusalem when he arrived there. Finally, we noticed the opposition that he encountered and the courage and faith that were required to move forward. When we encounter Nehemiah in chapters 4 to 6, we see all the marks of what happens when he moved from the first flush of enthusiasm for a new task to the ongoing costs and demands and the necessary perseverance required to see that task through to the end. Let's begin by noticing that one of the greatest challenges Nehemiah faced was whether what he was doing was significant at all. I'm reading chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. 
And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. You know, one small feature in what we have read should not be missed. When Sanballat asks, will they sacrifice, he's making a significant point. The Jews had been sacrificing for over 70 years, ever since they had first come back from exile, and They now did have a temple in which they could sacrifice. Sanballat knows that, but that's not the point he's making. Sanballat knows that when the work of building the wall around Jerusalem would be done, a special celebration would be held in which sacrifices would be offered as a thanksgiving to God. A worship service of thankfulness would be planned and everyone would attend. Sanballat is saying, you know, that celebration that you're planning, it's smoke and mirrors. You're going to work and work, but your work will never amount to anything. And you will never at the end of the day have the celebration that you're anticipating. Now, in some ways, what was being said was preying on the very real fear that a great many men have. Let me give you another example of this very same thing. When years earlier, the first group of exiles had returned and laid the foundation of the temple, some of the older men began to weep, not for joy, but out of a sense of futility. For they had seen the grandeur of the temple that had been built by Solomon. But now as the foundation stones of the new temple were laid, it seemed like the new temple was second-rate at best. All of this seemed like an exercise in futility and in humiliation. What they were building was nothing. And back then, it was the prophet Haggai that spoke directly to this attitude. I'm reading Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it now seem to you? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And that was precisely it. What we are about now is not significant. Other people in other ages have done a great work, and this work I'm involved in won't matter not the way that theirs did. And in a sense, all men feel that deep sense of uncertainty and a dread that just perhaps their lives don't matter. And what they're doing is but a small thing. Now, in the case of Haggai, he had something to say directly related to that fearful attitude. I'm reading Haggai chapter 2, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, in the end, every godly man has to make a decision. Do I believe a great work is one that receives the adulation of the crowds or one that seems great in my eyes? Or do I believe that a great work is one which is done in obedience to Christ my Lord? Can you believe that the greatest work that you can ever undertake is simply to submit to God's call rather than a work in which the crowd shout your praises? But if you want significance in the eyes of men, listen to me, men. You are an idolater. Jesus in John 5, 44 is recorded as saying, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? As long as men seek the praise of men as the determiner of what is significant, 
Well, in the end, we will discover that we are not God's man after all. You know, if you'd been asked in the beginning of the 1500s, which were the seminaries in the world that were most likely to make an impact, no one would have picked that tiny little seminary in Wittenberg, Germany. And yet, There in that place, the Reformation was launched, a movement that changed the world. And the point I'm trying to make is that what men think is significant is almost never that which is truly significant. Now back to Haggai and that pile of stones that formed the foundation of the temple that seemed so insignificant. The word from God is clear. Be strong. Work. Don't give up. Give yourselves fully to the work that God has entrusted you with. Be obedient and accomplish his assigned task. And then if that were not enough, God promises one more thing. I'm reading Haggai 2, 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now that shaking must have reminded those who heard Haggai speak of how Mount Sinai once shook just before God spoke and gave the Ten Commandments. And his glory at that moment was so overwhelming that the people who were there thought that they would die. But now, says Haggai, a day is coming when the presence of God would not only be felt in Israel, but in the entire world. What you're doing in this place and laying down these stones, I will shake all the nations. And indeed, this seemingly insignificant temple was going to be a part of shaking the world. According to Ezra 7, 15 to 23, the surrounding nations really did give silver and gold to it, but much more significant. The Messiah would come to this temple, and what he did there would change all of human history. These men in Haggai's time were involved in a significant task because God was in it, and that, men, is the definition of significance. The greatest thing I can do as a man is being willing to submit to God's calling upon my life. A great definition of significance and a great message as we continue this series. Just before John continues, I want to remind you of our New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea tour that Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are hosting this coming April 24th to May 5th. One of my greatest memories of these events past has been actually standing in the place of biblical significance while being taught firsthand by Dr. Neufeld the work of God that was at hand. Every day we'll share the same opportunity as we visit Ephesus, Corinth, Patmos, and the list goes on. This trip will lift your spirits and refresh and deepen your understanding of God's Word and your daily journey with Him. So consider joining us. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or check out the events page at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. In Nehemiah's time, as Nehemiah was setting out to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem in order to set up a defensive fortification to protect the city and to ensure its long-term viability, his enemies were mocking him. What are you doing? They said, it's not significant. This is laughable. Whatever you're able to build, if a fox jumps onto it, it will fall down. 
You're giving your life to that in which the only remembrance of you is going to be a joke. You need to quit now. You know, many a man has abandoned a holy calling because he has become convinced that what he is about is of no great value. And let me be clear. I'm not arguing that everything that men do has significance. Indeed, many men have given themselves to creating something that will outlast their time. They're trying to build a name for themselves. And if we're about receiving the praise of men or or doing something in which men will remember our names, then clearly, we're not in the business of the master. The man of God cares about the glory of God. Now, as Nehemiah carries on, confident that he is doing a great work, not an insignificant work, he encounters the next threat. We can't take a look at all the details, for this covers the second half of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5, but we're going to notice several things. For starters, we notice that the problems now move from those on the outside, from Sanballat and Tobiah, to those on the inside, to the people Nehemiah is helping and for whom he is sacrificing everything. You know, one of the most hurtful things that that a man or a woman of God can bear is when those inside the church turn against him. A man of God understands that those on the outside might do so. After all, we're all aware of stories of persecution and death, of early Christians thrown to the lions, and of modern-day Christians being beheaded for their faith. In the West, we expect the press to be less than sympathetic to us. After all, it was Jesus who told us that this is how things were going to be. But what's surprising and shocking to some More than one man of God has seen that the opposition has been the strongest among the people of the church. I've spoken with one pastor who's told me that it was the church that has done more to encourage him and more to wound him at the same time. And it is now to those wounds from within that we must address ourselves. Let's see how Nehemiah struggled with this matter. I'm I'm reading Nehemiah 4, 10 to 14. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, and your wives and your homes. I hope you're hearing that the first sign that there was trouble among the Jews was simply that the people were becoming tired. They'd become discouraged. They saw the problems, everything from the amount of work that was required to the constant danger posed from the enemy from without. The task of rebuilding the wall seemed greater than they had ever imagined, and it might have seemed as if the task would never be completed. Drudgery, doubts, a feeling of defeatism, all that was growing. And when these things begin to happen, expect criticism and more. Expect sins to show up from within that might surprise and even frighten us. Here again, we notice Nehemiah's leadership. He doesn't try to answer all the questions people have. Remember, he appeals to them to trust God. Remember the Lord, he says. Remember how awesome our God is, he urges. He's calling people when they become weary not to forget that the only way they can keep going is to trust God. Had God not called them to this task, 
Is that not the criterion as to whether they should persevere and double down and keep going? But soon we learn the problem was far greater than the people becoming weary. Chapter 5, which we will not take the time to read, must have hit Nehemiah hard. See, in this chapter is recorded how he moved from helping people who were feeling weary to suddenly facing something which, if it had been left unchecked, might have ended with Nehemiah going home completely a discouraged man, disillusioned by God's people, and vowing never to give himself to ministry again. Let's see if I can explain the crisis. The crisis was, in one sense, entirely economic. Building the wall with the demands of time and resources brought to light a long-simmering problem that highlighted the darker, seamier side of the life of the returned Jewish exiles. There were, in fact, four major problems. First, it became obvious that there were a number of landless Jews who were both poor but were also short on food. They were constantly one meal away from malnutrition. How many demands can you make on these people? Second, there were Jews who owned land, but their economic situation was no better than the landless poor. These poor landowners were forced to mortgage their property in order just to buy food. And third, there were a few who were rich, and they were forcing high interest rates on the poor, completely contrary to the Mosaic law, which forbade such a practice. And lastly, the final insult, some of the poor, in an act of desperation, were forced to sell their children into slavery, what was called an indentured slave. And the building of the wall and the time commitment required exasperated these problems. What was to be done? Now, now please do understand that what Nehemiah does next was something only he could do. We ought not to criticize a man who can't accomplish what Nehemiah did next. That is, because of the authority that had been handed to him by the king of Persia, this allowed him to act in a way that demanded rather than requested a solution. See, before Nehemiah arrived, Ezra had led a revival and encouraged the people to repent. Ezra acted the way a faithful pastor of today might act. See, most pastors don't have the authority to make demands. The authority they carry is the authority of persuasion, an authority to appeal to the Word of God and to call for an inner heart change. And that's not without effect, for the Holy Spirit will often move the heart. But if men and women simply harden their hearts, no change can be effected. But every once in a while, God will raise up a Nehemiah. This is the kind of man who comes with the ability to demand change. You know, I know of one seminary president who changed a seminary and led it to become one of the largest, most biblically-based seminaries in the world because a board invested him with the kind of authority that allowed him to do what was required. It's a very different kind of authority, and it's just this kind of authority that had been given to Nehemiah from no less than the king of Persia himself. And... Nehemiah was not afraid to use that authority. It was authority that God had given him. He demanded the rich abandon the imposing of interest payments and that they returned all properties that had been confiscated. And they had no option but to comply. Nehemiah had the authority to force this into being. But Nehemiah went further. He took no more from the people than his daily ration. He was providing an example as to how to live in difficult times. And in all of this, I have wanted to make a point. Why would anyone rebuild a wall to provide protection and a future for a people who are just as sinful as ever? 
And the point behind all of this is that God gives a variety of tasks. And somewhere along the way, the godly man who embraces God's assignment finds that the assignment becomes harder than he had ever imagined. He faces weariness, discouragement, and criticism, and those who seek his undoing. And not a few men of God have found themselves, at least in their own eyes, to be abject failures. And if they will but believe, they will know that if God is in it, they will not have failed. They may be criticized. They may be discouraged. They might even begin to doubt themselves. But at those moments, they need to remember the words of Haggai. Haggai said, work, for God is with you. To remember that God is really with us, we need to remember the words of Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So don't give up. The Lord is with you. Continue to do that which God has called you to do. John, this is an encouraging message. But I can imagine for Nehemiah, he wasn't always feeling encouraged. And and I know there's people, and maybe I've experienced it myself, that sometimes are being crushed even by those we've trusted the most. How do we get back on track? How do we pick ourselves up and, and go back to the work that God has assigned for us? Yeah, you know, it is the the worst wounds that we bear are those that were inflicted by individuals that we trusted. I think we all understand that. I remember years ago, I'm ministering with a Romanian evangelist who, after communism came down, had found out that his trusted advisor, a man who he'd spent countless hours in prayer with, was actually informing back to the communist regime. You know, he found it very difficult to go on. There are so many stories like that. So we need to remember uh, Christ's parable of the wheat and the tares. And we need also to remember that sometimes people that, you know, have good intentions wound us nonetheless. But we need to find our strength in God. I think that's the key. Thanks so much, John. A great and encouraging message. And we look forward to tomorrow in conclusion of this series, God's Man, right here on Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. God has provided for Back to the Bible Canada in incredible ways this past year. Generosity that honestly overwhelms us at times and certainly convicts us of the great trust that is being placed in our hands to honor God and teach the Bible faithfully. The month of June is our fiscal year end, which provides us both the opportunity to look back with gratitude and to look forward with great expectation. We believe there is so much yet to be accomplished and the opportunity to do more is at hand. So would you consider partnering with us with a special fiscal year end gift this month? Our goal for June is to raise $256,000, a lofty goal. But to get there, we've been blessed with a very generous matching pledge of $100,000. That means for every dollar donated this month, another dollar will be given up to $100,000. The impact of this pledge is dramatic. So please consider how you might partner with us to reach and perhaps even exceed our goal for June. And together, God's Word will continue to be spread and declared through the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Call us today, would you, at 1-800-663-2425. 
That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.